This is Top Landing Gear. Hello and welcome to Top Landing Gear and our Full Flaps Battle of Britain special. Our guest is a man who has written more extensively about the Battle of Britain than anyone else. Much of that writing is from first-hand accounts and friendships built up over many years with the few, such as Letters from the Few and Battle of Britain 1940, The Finest Hours Human Cost, to name but two of a vast and continually growing library of books that he has written on the subject and continues to write. A fellow of the Royal Historical Society, he is an MBE awarded for services to aviation history. Well, Top Landing Gear is delighted to welcome historian Dilip Sarka. Dilip, thank you so much for joining Top Landing Gear for this Battle of Britain special. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Uh, let me just introduce the team. I'm Rob Curling. I'm the sort of, you know, the host, the professional here amongst this rabble. We've got... Uh, <laughs> We've got Roy Stride, who's producing it all, who's our pop star from Scouting for Girls. There's oh, James, yeah. James Cartner, is our professional pilot. I say professional. I say pilot. And we've got uh, Jeremy <laughs> Curling, my brother, who's an agricultural fencer. It's a long story as to why he's on the podcast. We won't go there now. But, but Dilip, as far as you're concerned, I mean, you've written so prolifically, prolifically about the Battle of Britain. What is it about it that has compelled you to write quite so extensively well i i think it's the old knight's champion thing isn't it with spitfires and hurricanes i mean it's how how more exciting could anything possibly be to uh, uh, a schoolboy which is when i first got obsessed with it you know i mean come on we, we've all been schoolboys haven't we I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, some of us are. indeed still are quite so <laughs> So you're growing up in the 1960s, uh, and the war is omnipresent. So you, you, mm. you can't get away from it. Your grandparents have been in it. Your teachers have been in it. Your neighbours have been in it. it. It's a relentless barrage uh, of war toys for boys, Airfix models, <laughs> Action Man, Johnny Seven, mm. you know, all this stuff. Relentless barrage of war films, The Dam Busters, Reach for the Sky, Angels 1-5, 633 Squadron. You know, you can't get away from it. Uh, and my uncle made model Spitfires, big flying models, you know. So th- there's always been a Spitfire, a Hurricane, or a Messerschmitt, or a Fuckerwolf around somewhere. <laughs> and... Um, so, so like everybody else, it, it started as a schoolboy's passion. You know, let's not forget all of the jingoistic comics that we used to get bombarded with. Valiant, Victor, yes. Warlord, Commando, all this stuff, Eagles. you know. So I was absolutely obsessed with it all. Yeah. And um, my, my neighbour w- was actually, when I was growing up in Worcester, he was a Royal Navy man, First and Second World War, absolutely fantastic bloke. Uh, and John Anthony just, I think he was more interested in, in airplanes, actually. But, but, but he just so inspired me uh, talking about, about the war and his experiences and things. And my own grandfather was 
in the Grenadier Guards and captured before Dunkirk and his mate won a VC and we didn't know anything about this until his day of his funeral and that that was kind of quite typical because my granddad wouldn't talk about it so I kind of sensed uh, when I was very young that, that there was a bit of a juxtaposition going on here that that, that I thought war was incredibly glorious and uh, and a, a tremendously mm -hmm. exciting and inspirational thing uh, and yet Mr. Anthony w was happy to talk about it. My granddad absolutely never wanted to discuss it. I've since written a book about what he was involved with, and I'm not surprised he didn't want to discuss it, quite mm. honestly. But um, but that that was sort of how it started. And then when I was uh, eight, the Battle of Britain film came out, and I'm sure you know those of us who are old enough to remember because it was the film's 50th anniversary last year. You know, scary as that. Mm -hmm. But Sorry. it was subject to a good <laughs> couple of years promotion, the Battle of Britain film. And we collected Battle of Britain bubblegum and <laughs> collector's cards. And it was always in the comics and in the annuals every Christmas, you know. Uh, and and it, it was just, again, this, this relentless barrage that, that is going to captivate any schoolboy, arguably. Uh, and I was that man. Um and I, and I remember going to see the film, by which time, you know, I, I was well and truly hooked on the whole thing. Um, uh, and it, it was just phenomenal to see this film in, in Technicolor on a big screen with, with all the large scale flying models that were used in the film exhibited around the foyer uh, of the cinema I saw it at. Uh, and that was how it all started. But, but by then I was already um, making, you know, model planes and things like that. And... And then as time went on, uh, the, the, the sort of interest changed a bit. My, my dad, who was Indian, was a Quaker, unusually. And um, we were coming back from London one day and he stopped at Morton in the Marsh. And he said, I want to show you something. And we went into this cemetery and there was, there's a small plot of Commonwealth War Graves Commission graves there, which I now know are from what is now the fire service training college over the road during the war it was a wellington mm -hmm. bomber operational yep. training unit so they're training casualties from there uh, and i was 10 years old and it's it's one of two of the most profound things that's ever happened to me because i walked into that cemetery uh, and everything just made it just tipped everything on its head for me that i i was you know lapping up all this about war being amazing uh, and and this was the stark reality of it uh, and my dad said you know th this this is what war's really all about so you know so i was fascinated and I, I walked along the rows of those headstones and um i i i was just just so moved that all, we, we all knew as schoolboys about your Douglas Barders, your Johnny mm -hmm. Johnsons, your Guy Gibsons, and mm. goodness knows who else, you know, who, who'd who had films made about them or have written their biographies or had autobiographies or, or, or had biographies published about them. And the stories are on the, the front page of the Victor comic every week, you know. Um, but, but these were real people, and to me they were absolutely anonymous. Uh, and I, I wanted to know what they looked like. I wanted to know what their stories were. I wanted to know about their families. And, and that was it. Uh, and I realized at that point 
that war was not a game. And then when I was um, growing up in the Midlands, you know, it's not like you're living down in Kent or Sussex or Hampshire or Dorset and you've got the Battle of Britain. You can drive down the road and there's a crash site. It seems to me to be around every corner whenever I go down there. (laughs) Um, You know, it wasn't like that for me living up in Worcester in the Midlands. And um, when, when I was about 18, the Battle of Britain then and now came out published by Winston Ramsey's after the battle set up, which, you know, again, you know, that that was amazing because there's this encyclopedic volume that's actually showing you the headstones and the faces of the people. And and it just all made total sense to me that that is what I wanted to do with my life. That was that was my calling, really. Um, And it all went from there. And that 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 was concurrent with aviation archaeology suddenly becoming a thing so i was i was getting heavily involved with that um and then in 1985 i moved to to i was in the police then and and i i was about 23 i mean i moved sorry dylan was this as a hobby at the time or were you were you making a a living doing no this this is a hobby i'm i'm a police officer at this time and um i i moved to work in in malvern and uh, a friend of mine, Andy Long, I-, I bumped into, and he said, did you know that there was a Spitfire crash just outside Malvern? Polish Battle of Britain pilot bailed out. And that was it. Ping. <laughs> I've just actually recorded a half an hour video this afternoon for my YouTube channel all about this because it was absolutely the light bulb moment. And uh, that's really how the research and the writing began because we we set up then the Malvern Spitfire team, which was like-minded enthusiasts to research this particular story. And um, we uh, identified all the different pilots who've flown that aircraft, interviewed eyewitnesses, traced the surviving pilots, interviewed them, um, traced Surma's family, traced what happened to him, his story, which was an incredible story. And... uh, we excavated the remains of the Spitfire in 87 at a big event that we organised. And, of course, we were only kids on reflection. We were not very old. Uh, and we, we built a memorial to this pilot. He wasn't killed at that time. He bailed out because of an engine fire. But he was he was a Battle of Britain ace. And uh, he was missing over Dunkirk six months later. So we sort of pieced together the forensically, if you like, the, the operation that he was lost in and identified who'd shot him down and traced his best friend in Buenos Aires. It was actually a massive project. And we um, built a, a memorial to him at the roadside near where he'd landed by parachute. Because he was missing, it just resonated with us. And we felt that he deserved some kind of personal memorial. And at the time, in 1987, it was the only individual memorial to a Polish fighter pilot in the UK. And, it, and it, this is very mm-hmm. important because it's not like it, it is today. Back in those days, the Polish community was comparatively small. It is infinitely bigger today for all the reasons we're all aware of. Now, the other crucial thing to understand is that at that time, Poland was still behind the Iron Curtain. So the people who had fought in the Second World War over here were still very conscious that they had family living behind the Iron Curtain and, um, you know, wanted really to to maintain their anonymity as much as possible and keep a low profile. 
So trying to get information about the Poles was difficult. Uh, communication with Poland was erratic uh, and had to be done largely through the post. And then you've got the language barrier. And, you know, it, it was really difficult. But they so appreciated what we'd done and they couldn't believe, actually, that anybody was even remotely interested in, in the Polish side of things and what, what they had done. Uh, and when we built this memorial, it was unveiled by squadron leaders Gandhi Drabinsky and Ludwig Martel, both of whom had flown Spitfires in the Battle of Britain. It, it was absolutely incredible, it really was. And it, it just it just paved the way because of that project. Everything I've ever done came from that because mm. within that project, you've got the history of an aircraft, you've got the history of surviving pilots, you've got the history of casualties, uh, everything. And the forensic um, analysis of air battles and so on and so forth. And, uh, and nothing has really changed except for the fact that the eyewitnesses and the survivors are dead now. Mm. In, in terms of its significance historically, Dilip, how, how big a deal was, was the Battle of Britain? So, OK, so there isn't a Battle of Britain. Hitler walks in here and the country is taken over by the Nazis. What's, what's going to happen then? Who's going to stand up to Hitler? So, do, do you, you think that the domination of the domination of the air definitely pre- prevented Sea Lion taking place? Is that? Oh, no question. I mean, you look at look at Operation Overlord, the massive planning that went into that, and the air operations, which were absolutely immense. You know, air power is mm-hmm. everything. Let, 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 let's let, let's absolutely be clear on that. Air power is everything. What won the Battle of France? It wasn't Panzers. It was air power. It was total German domination of the battlefield by the Messerschmitt 109. Simple, proven fact. So we can have all the arguments under the sun about the fact that Hitler, you know, any attempt to um, to uh, invade England was a, an unexpected opportunity. It was a lash-up job. You know, it certainly lacked the years of experience and preparation that Overlord, um, you know, boasted. But... But at the end of the day, if they'd have been able to come over here, they would have been here, wouldn't they? Do you think that um, the British and their allies at that time were rather late to come to realise that fighter power over the bomber will always get through, which was the phrase that was appealing to some? Were we were we quite late to the party? Well, yes and no. I, yes and no. I, I mean, don't forget that... Looking at the Battle of France and the German air domination, you know, that wasn't a defensive battle. That that was a, an offensive situation where the Germans have worked all this out in Spain in the mid-1930s. So, you know, that's TAC air, isn't it? That's tactical air cooperation. So um, it's slightly different. But, but, but just let, let's talk about this because this is a really, really interesting point that at the time... The bomber will always get through. You're absolutely right. Stanley Baldwin told the House that um, there was no power on earth was going to stop the bomber getting through. And uh, Trenchard famously said uh, that it was only necessary to have fighters to uh, keep up the morale of your own people. Uh, and the, and the, the, a really, really important thing is what, what I think... There's two things I don't think people actually necessarily always understand. The first thing is that monoplanes were brand new. 
they were nothing like the biplanes that the RAF had been equipped with up until 1938, the Gauntlet. So you, we've got open cockpits, biplanes, comparatively slow, uh, fixed undercarriage, and then suddenly you've got the Spitfire and the Hurricane, which are fast, manoeuvrable monoplanes with enclosed cockpits, retractable undercarriage, and eight machine guns. They are, you know, absolutely state-of-the-art things. And the quanti- it's a quantum leap, isn't it, between a Gauntlet and a Spitfire? or a hurricane, you know, so mm-hmm. they're very new and, and nobody has yet been to war in these things except the Germans. So <laughs> the Germans go to Spain, work it all out with the ME 109. They are leagues ahead of everybody else. And we are still clinging on to this. Whereas in Spain, the, the Germans have moved away slightly from this air power doctrine about the knockout blow and the bomber force. And, and they very cleverly worked out that actually... The way to go here is tack air in support of the army. So you've got your blitzkrieg and your troops moving, supported by flying artillery and so on and so forth. So they've slightly moved away from this. They haven't got a strategic air force, don't forget. So we we, we then see a situation where in Spain, Guernica is bombed. Uh, and this terrifies people. Now, now we, you know, most of us here are of an age and we grew up at a time when people were terrified of nuclear power. I can remember at school, you know, when I, even at infant school, you used to have watch have to watch programs about it, and mm-hmm. people were absolutely flipping terrified of it. And it was exactly the same with bombing, especially after Guadalcanal. So you, you've got, you know, the, the whole thing revolves around this knockout blow. And you're absolutely right; they were. It wasn't just that they were late coming to the party about about fighters, because I don't I don't think they did until until after the Battle of Britain, really. Uh, and the only reason that, that we had a, a, a fighter force substantial enough to to even fight the Battle of Britain was down to Dowding. And we all know about his famous letter that preserved mm. uh, squadrons for the Battle of Britain, <clears throat> not to see them frittered away in France, you know. Uh, and without Dowding, backed up very ably by Keith Park, who was his senior air staff officer, um, before Park took over at 11 Group, you know, these two men outside of Germany understood more about fighters than anybody else. No question about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dowding was absolutely and utterly convinced and would not be swayed from his, his unshakable belief in the defence of base. Now, now, you've got, on the one hand, you've got Trenchard, and Trenchard and Dowding didn't get on anyway. I mean... Trenchard thought that uh, uh, Dowding, uh, um, sorry, yeah, Dowding uh, accused Dow, uh, Trenchard accused Dowding of being stubborn. Was caught, according to Dowding, Trenchard w- w- was ju- just a technical idiot, basically, and hadn't got any grasp of. <laughs> he he of was the father of the RAF, Trenchard, wasn't he? he? Was fa- that's yeah. right, he was. But so he's of therefore an extremely influential figure. But um, Dowding, you know, he would not absolutely wouldn't agree with this about the knockout blow because his argument was unless you concentrate on defense of base and security of base the, the, the whole war could be over before the bomber baron has had the opportunity to fight a major battle uh, and to me that sounds perfectly common sense really so Dowding of course you know was the was the one that absolutely clung to this uh, and was just so determined I, I, I can't express my admiration enough for the man and um, uh, against this massive political 
uh, a, a military fixation with, with the bomber. So, so yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm always fascinated by the relationship between Dowding Park and Lee Mallory and and latterly Sholto Douglas, who who took over from Dowding. We tend to think, I suppose, as laymen that. We were a sort of homogenous unit, all pulling in the same direction. But there was quite a lot of, I imagine, a lot of egos and a lot of entrenched thinking between those probably highly stubborn and influential characters. Can we just explain who all these characters are? Okay, so right, so let's so let's talk about Fighter Command then. So uh, the Fighter Command that fought the Battle of Britain. We've got Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding, who is the Air Officer Commanding in Chief. Okay. Then we've got the country is divided up into groups, 13 group up in the north, 12 group, the Midlands and the, well, the industrial north and the Midlands, 11 group, London and the southeast, and 10 group, which, which actually was formed at the start of the Battle of Britain, down in the southwest. So each of these groups are commanded by an air vice marshal. So you've got, for our purposes, what we're going to be talking about, uh, air vice marshal Trafford Lee Mallory was the commander of 12 group air vice marshal keith park 11 group london the southeast and air vice marshal quentin brand commanding 10 group uh, and all of these people are under dowding so dowding is the man but bef- but but the situation you've got here it is park and dowding had actually flown fighters in the first world war lee mallory hadn't lee mallory had got no experience in that regard so it was one of those quirky things uh, and you know i i can relate to it from my policing days where you'd have somebody having to tick a box and do a particular job for a bit to get the next step up the ladder but not necessarily being something that they are absolutely experienced in or passionate about and i i think that's what happened with lee mallory really so one thing about lee 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 mallory was very uh, pro the big wing, it was his, his idea of the big wing. Did, was that looked down on by Parks? And was it only Mallory and, and um, Barda that um, were, were pro big wing, or, or was that a? Um... Okay, so the big wing's very very complicated. Okay, and um, I, I don't want to get too I'll complicated it, if, I, if we. No, but we'll try and keep it as simple as we can. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> so. You, you've got a situation here where there's a lot of angst between these people. So Lee Mallory had um, had already demonstrated that he he basically didn't understand the system of air defence, and he certainly didn't understand his group's part in that. And because he was an ambitious man, he wasn't prepared to to play second fiddle to Keith Parker or anybody else. One of the reasons for that is Keith, is that Lee Mallory was more senior on the Air Force list than Keith Park. So he deeply resented the fact that Park, when he was promoted to Air Vice Marshal, he was given 11 group. Uh, and sometime prior to that, uh, Dowding had occasion to have Lee Mallory into his office at Bentley Priory, after which uh, Lee Mallory came out and swore to Park, who was then Dowding Sasso, that he would see him replaced one day. So you've got these sort of things going on in the background. Now, now, with the wing, it wasn't Lee Mallory's idea, it was Bard's idea. Mm. Uh, and therein lies another tale. <laughs> because. Um, and what do we mean by big wing, exactly, okay. uh, Dylan? Well, well, let's... OK, so the situation Dowding and Park have got is they've got limited resources, haven't they? 
So they have to fight a battle where they inflict the greatest damage on the enemy whilst concurrently preserving their limited forces. And they decide to do that through attacking in small formations. Small formations are also very flexible. And that's very important because although radar is providing uh, an, an early warning to a degree, it was very primitive, uh, and these attacks could always be feints or they could go off on a dogleg course and these formations could split up that they often did. So the whole thing from a defensive perspective needed to be flexible. So we didn't want the, the, these great formations of aircraft. It, it just doesn't work. So what happens is on the 30th of August, Barda uh, is eventually called upon to reinforce 11 Group. And, uh, of course, they've been kicking their heels around at Duxford and Coltishall and places like that, Falmere. Uh, and, and now the big moment has come. So Barder's leading 242 Squadron, and he's not been back in the Air Force very long. He's only returned to the Air Force six months previously uh, to, to operationally to join 19 Squadron in February 1940 and learn to fly Spitfires. Now he's flying Hurricanes. So... Uh, they sally forth and, and intercept a, a German raid on Hatfield. And, uh, well, it's just chaos, really. I mean, the, the amount of uh, claims made by 242 Squadron, um, well, and this is political. These are Canadian, so it, it generates signals of congratulation from the Canadian government and, and the air ministry and so on and so forth. And Bader, and this is his first engagement with a mass German formation, because Bader then writes a paper uh, expressing the view that had he had more uh, airplanes at his disposal, he would have executed more damage on the enemy. So this is where the big wing idea comes from now. The, the whole argument is that small flexible formations are not the way to go, and big wings of three or five squadrons of aircraft, so that's up to 60 airplanes, that is the way to go. This is totally contrary to the system. And what we now know is that, uh, incredibly, when Bader is writing this paper that 242 Squadron were, were on their own attacking these German bombers and so on, and that therefore if he had more fighters there would be more damage inflicted, that, that wasn't true. What no, uh, There were squadrons from 11 Group engaged at the same time. In the, in the same action, one squadron and treble two squadron. So, frankly, the whole thing was flawed right from the outset. And that <laughs> is because the great Douglas Bader is actually inexperienced mm. in modern fighter combat. Mm. You know, but he has got this incredible personality. Uh, and, and, well, you know, I mean, people just couldn't deal with him. So, Bard, it's Bader's idea. Barber, Bader propounds this theory as a means of getting 12 Group into the battle, and himself in particular. And Lee Mallory, who is an ambitious man and deeply resentful that Park appears to be hogging the battle. Well, of course he is, because <laughs> this is 11 know. Group in London and South East. Uh, and this is how, it's, how the whole thing has been structured to be fought. Yeah. But... But this pair, you know, the big wing thing is, is, is their means of getting into the battle. Now, it is crucially important to understand that there is a gulf of difference between a combat claim and an actual loss. Mm -hmm. So the more airplanes you have in the sky fighting concurrently, the more, the more chaotic and confusing it is. So you could have, we, we could all be in action now attacking a German aircraft and we could all claim it was destroyed, and we could all, because of the speeds involved, 
be totally oblivious to the fact that the rest of us are also attacking that same aircraft. Mm. So one German bomber could be multiplied five or six times on the balance sheet. Now, the, with the big wing, without a great deal of, of checking, if any, quite honestly, all of their, their claims, which were for God knows how many airplanes, that they were they were accepted. Mm. So if you look at the difference between claims, you've got 11 group claiming a lot less and, and the big wing knocking them down like skittles. Well, you know, you're going to think, well, blimey, they've got something, these big wing boys, haven't they? <laughs> this is obviously the way to go. Yeah. What we know now is that the 11 group claims were far more accurate yeah. offset against the actual German losses and that on occasions the big wing overclaimed by at least seven to one. Gosh, blimey. So wow. there is no question whatsoever. And if you, you've, I mean, it astonishes me that the big wing thing even literally got off the ground yeah. because <laughs> you've only got to do, you've only got to do simple schoolboy maths over time, over distance. Uh, and, and the Germans are on the way home. Because it you takes know, so long so, to form up, <laughs> you mean? No, 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 no. That's a fallacy. Oh. They didn't form up. They took off from the Hurricanes, took off from Duxford. Barder just pointed his nose in the direction of the action and everybody else had to keep up with him. And then the Spitfires came from Falmere, which obviously were faster. They'd all catch up. But time over distance, trying to get there, the Germans have bombed. They've gone home. Yeah. So... Yeah. What's happening now, and this is also important to understand, I know we didn't want to get into the big wing in, in detail, you said there, James, but, you know, hell. We're there it, now. It, it is complicated <laughs> stuff. Because, because, well, we are. We are. People don't understand either the rudimentary communication. So yeah. you, with the, the TR9D radio set, pilots could talk, pilots in a squadron could talk to each other and they could talk to the ground controller but they couldn't talk to other squadrons. Mm -hmm. So the, the communication thing, it, it's, it's really a convoy, this big wing thing. It is, yeah. And, and it, you know, Park used this system over Dunkirk to get large numbers of fighters to the French coast. They travelled in convoy, mm -hmm. and then once they were there, they, they were on their own, yeah. you know, as squadrons or whatever. So, so the, what I'm getting at is very often what happened was Barda would ignore the controller's instructions, because he, of course, knew best. And uh, he'd go on what were essentially free-roving fighter sweeps over Kent with, with between 36 and 50 aircraft. And suddenly, the Observer Corps have got this, this unidentified formation in the air, and it's throwing the defences mm. into utter confusion. Mm. Uh, didn't – wasn't it regarded – in the end, though, um, Dilip, that in fact both systems worked. I'm sure, in fact, in in your book, Letters from the Few, I'm sure, I think it was George Unwin, Grumpy Unwin, who who wrote that in fact in the end it was it was realised that both systems actually played their part. Yeah, well, they didn't. I, oh. I mean, well, no, because <laughs> you're writing what you say. You're writing what you say. You know, and and. Uh, how can I explain this? I, I mean, you can have a perception about something, as George did, but just because you were there, it doesn't mean it was right. Mm -hmm. And George, to be fair, you know, was not aware of all the subsequent research and analysis that's gone on about the big wing that proves beyond doubt that mm -hmm. it didn't work. 
Uh, and I will put to you that in January 1941, by which time Lee Mallory had taken over Park's job, he held a paper exercise simulating a raid that had actually come in on Big and Hill, I think it was, during the Battle of Britain, to prove that his big wing worked in defence. And the big wing hadn't even got off the ground by the time the Germans had bombed the place and turned <laughs> round again. So, it, it, you know, I, I mean, no, that, that, that again is people used to write that a lot in the 70s and 80s that, that, you know, they were both right. Lee Mallory was right in 12 group. Lee Part was right in 11 group. No, it's not. It's rubbish. <laughs> And we've come a long way since those days yeah. in terms of research, you see. History is a science. It's an ongoing yeah. process because interpretations change as more information and more accurate information comes to light over time. So that's where we are now. You yeah. know, I, I the, the big wing uh, ended up taking over uh, because of political reasons. Dowding and Park had made too many enemies. And while they were getting on fighting the Battle of Britain, you know, other people were feathering the nests in the corridors of power, weren't they? And George, George Grumpy Unwin, we should just say, was far from grumpy, wasn't he? He was a Spitfire pilot, I think became a wing commander, didn't he, in the end? Oh, George was fantastic. Yeah. He was absolutely amazing, yeah. I mean, they all were, but George is a particular, uh, you know, he was always a particular friend of mine. I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, he was one of the most aggressive Spitfire pilots in the Battle of Britain uh, and a little... He was quite a little guy, really, George, and uh, a miner's son from uh, from Yorkshire who had the good fortune to go to grammar school. And we're talking about Trenchard early. well, uh, earlier. Well, I mean, George joins the RAF as a clerk uh, and ends up a fighter pilot. How is that? That's <laughs> because the 1936 expansion scheme where Trenchard actually mm. comes uh, into his own and does a number of far-sighted things uh, one of which is to allow a small number of serving airmen to become pilots. And the idea is that they can fly for a certain period of time, I think four years, I think it was, and then revert to their original trade. So that's going to uh, increase the, the establishment of pilots, and it's also going to increase yeah. the reserve when they've gone back to their original trade. There's an increase in the reserve of trained pilots. So George was one of those who uh, who capitalised on that and became a pilot, and it's a good job he did. Dilip, you'll be, you'll be pleased, I hope you'll be pleased to know that I'm, I've just started reading your, your book, Battle of Britain 1940, um, The Finest Hours Human Cost, and it's I've just got to the part where we're t you're talking about the number of Royal Air Force volunteer reserves coming in on exactly that scheme. It's fascinating. I yeah. have no idea about that. Yeah, I, I think that for 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 me, I, I'm not just interested in in the the combats and the bombs and the bullets. I'm interested in the whole thing. I'm interested in the social history side of this, you know, the political history side of it, uh, and what's happening in the Royal Air Force. You know, this expansion scheme and the opportunities that that the war gave ordinary people the chance to fly it, it is phenomenal. You know, you you look at the that we're talking now about the volunteer reserve. You know, the, the, you're looking at a very strictly hierarchical and delineated society. So uh, these people would never have got the chance to fly, it, it, you know, grammar school boys, if it wasn't for, for the expansion scheme and the war. So the, the volunteer reserve is an amazing, you know, great initiative. In the, um, the, RF, the um, Battle of Britain, as, as it stands, from, from day one, was there ever a chance that Germany could have won it? The Germans actually achieved aerial supremacy uh, for a short mm -hmm. period in October, but it was too late then. 
because Hitler had stood down the invasion opportunity in September. The weather had really turned. Uh, and, you know, it, it's it, it's a funny old thing, the Battle of Britain, because officially begins on the 10th of July. Why is that? Nobody knows. Because uh, the, the fighting actually started on the 2nd of July. So in, in Battle of Britain 1940 that you're reading, Sam, you know, that there, there are stories in there because it kind of fires me up that you've got 13 pilots killed between the 2nd and the 9th of July inclusive, plus others wounded, but they can't be counted amongst the few. <laughs> so that doesn't quite seem right to me. <laughs> then you've got the end date is the 31st of October. So we're all sat outside at dispersal and it's AKA Battle yeah. of Britain film time, you know, and all of a sudden the Germans are not coming. And Sam's going to go out and throw up when the telephone rings and all this, you know. <laughs> and it, it's just nonsense because it didn't happen like that. So, at the, uh, to, you know, when when should the Battle of Britain finish? Well, you could argue that September the 15th yeah. was the climax. Hitler calls off the invasion September the 17th. So any fighting from the 17th of September onwards is not being directed towards the objective right. of an invasion. So arguably, mm. the Battle of Britain's over by the 17th of September. But um, they, you know, the fighting continued. With the, the Germans are bombing by night. I mean, German historians argue, well, there's two schools. One, one say there was never a Battle of Britain in the first place. Mm. And the other school says that the Battle of Britain didn't finish until May 1941, when the night blitz concluded and, and they, they went off and invaded Russia, you know. But for, in terms of the fight of war, September, after the climax, the Germans are very clever because Keith Park knows that these fighter sweeps that are coming in very, very high for, for, for those types of aircraft, they're coming in over 30,000 feet. And if you, unless you put a, another fighter up there to intercept them, yeah. all they're going to do is waste petrol. Mm. So just let them get on with it, you know. Uh, so the Germans then realising this, they stick fighter bombers in the formation and on the uh, 18th of September or 20th of September, all of a sudden there's a fighter sweep coming in over London that's being ignored and bombs start exploding in central London and Piccadilly. Uh, and from that point onwards, no, no German incursion could be ignored because they never knew when these fighter bombers were going to be included. And it was at that point that all of the, the, the Spitfire pilots particularly, because they were the ones fighting up at high altitude, they remember that period of late September and October as being the most exhausting time uh, because the, the amount of high-flying, very tiring patrols they were they had to fly. And it was at that point that the, the 109 was a fantastic aeroplane. Those German fighter pilots knew their business. And um, when they, they were most effective, when they were able to, to range freely, Freihunter, these free-range fighter sweeps, you know, with the, their own initiative, not be shackled to the bombers. Uh, and, and it was at that point in October when they were flying these big fighter sweeps that, that they, they did achieve ascendancy over a period of time. But it was too late. Do, do you feel that these sort of arbitrary dates um, of 10th July to 31st of October um, rather leave out vast sections of the RAF and the ground crews and and fighter command and bomber command because bomber command were involved. I think I've just read Guy Gibson's book and he he would just said he was involved with the Battle of Britain when they were bombing the barges 
the invasion barges for, for Operation Sea Lion. So do you think those, those those arbitrary dates, I think, prescribed by the War Office or something, leave out... Well, yeah, no, I, 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 I quite agree. It's something I feel quite strongly about, actually, because... Um, so the qualification for the Battle of Britain bar to the 1939-45 star it is for a pilot or an air crew to have flown at least one operational patrol between the dates with one of the 71 or 72 accredited fighter command units. So that totally excludes immediately everybody else. So you're absolutely right. Bomber Command was involved in, in hopping over there and beating up the barges around Boulogne and Calais and so on. Um, so that they're excluded from this. Uh, and yet when Churchill made his famous speech on, on a, that was broadcast on the 20th of August, when he said, you know, about about never in the field of human conflict and the few, you know, I mean, he wasn't just talking about fighter command. So it's a bit of an anomaly, really. Now, I've always tried to write about the ground crew. And I mean, in Battle of Britain 1940 there, there's the story of John Joseph Jackson, who was a fitter on 610 Spitfire Squadron at Biggin Hill, killed when Biggin Hill was bombed on the 30th of August. Uh, and in Letters from the Few, there's uh, Ray Johnson there, who was an armourer with 152 Squadron down in 10 Group. So, you know, I've always tried to make sure that these... These people in background roles are absolutely essential to keeping fighter command operational. You know, they shouldn't be ignored. Now, now some years ago, probably about 25 years ago, I would think, near, near enough, I remember having a conversation with um, Air Chief Marshal Sir Christopher Foxy Norris, who was then chairman of the Battle of Britain Fighter Association. Now, the Battle of Britain Fighter Association is the few themselves. So it's currently the most exclusive club in the world because it's only got one member. <laughs> yeah. um, but but at the fewer time, getting fewer. Yeah. Indeed. I, I I at the time, I mean, it was amazing because I mean, I, I was invited to to the annual reunions at Bentley Priory. So, you know, I sat down and dined with over a hundred Battle of Britain pilots at the time. You know, which is unimaginable today. Uh, and uh, you know. We didn't take photographs so much in those days either because photography, it was sort of intrusive. Not like today, you'd be there, wouldn't you? Come here. On the TikTok. You know, wouldn't you? And it'd be on Facebook. I'd be all over Facebook and Twitter with it, you know. Of course you would. It'd be on my YouTube channel. But but it, it, it's all changed. So, But I suggested, because they were getting concerned about the march of time and the membership numbers, you know, starting to dwindle a bit. And I said, well, why don't you open it up to ground crew? who were there in the Battle of Britain, you know, what it could even be an associate membership category, you know, but, but they weren't interested. And I was mm. quite disappointed about that because I thought, I thought the old snobby days had, were over really. And, and I thought that's what it was about. But, was but about, you could widen it even further. Couldn't you deal it to, to plotters, observer core, ATA? Yeah, I of mean, course you could. everyone yeah, yeah. played a part. Really. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Exactly. That, that's what I'm saying. Mm. So, you know, at the end of the day, the Battle of Britain Fighter Association is what it is. It is for the few themselves. But whether other people should have been included in that category to have the Battle of Britain bar, you know, I don't know. I mean, that, that that's mm. a big point of debate, isn't it? That's, uh, we could debate it yeah. forever. It won't make any difference because it's not going to happen. One thing I am doing is... Uh, uh, I mean, again, Battle of Britain 1940. I mean, you know, one of the stories in there is about pilot officer Alec Bird, who was a ferry pilot down at Kemble in Gloucestershire, uh, who takes off with another 
uh, ferry pilot intercepts a Yonkers 88 that's bound for destruction of the uh, Gloucester aircraft factory at Hucklecote. Uh, and cutting a long story short, they bring this aircraft down. Bird either rams it or collides with it, one of the two. And uh, it, it, it's, it's also attacked by Spitfires from five operational training unit on the way down. And Bird, is, Bird crashes and is killed. Uh, a couple of the Germans are killed, the rest are captured. But Bird, it cannot be one of the few, even though he gave his life in the Battle of Britain in action. Uh, and his widow, Marjorie, who I knew, you know, I, I, I mean, she, I remember her saying to me, she said, it's heartbreaking that he's not recognised like that. And yet I know other pilots who, well, uh, included in which would be my great friend, Air Vice Marshal Johnny Johnson, who ended up the top scoring fight, RAF fighter pilot of the war. But in fairness, Johnny, you know, saw no action in the Battle of Britain uh, and and but fulfilled the qualification because he took off to intercept an X-ray with Poppy <laughs> Dundas and landed again. And that's that. So there you go, Johnny. There's, yeah. your, there's your membership card. Yeah. Happy days. But then other people who were killed because mm. they weren't with fighter command units, it's not right, is it? So I'm talking to the Battle of Britain Tr Memorial Trust at the moment because down at the National Memorial site at Cape Lefern, that is absolutely... You know, it's a shrine, isn't it? it? It is what it is. It's the National Memorial. It, it's a wonderful place. Whilst you can go up the road to the Kent Battle of Britain Museum at Hawkinge and you can see the remains of over 700 aircraft crashed, shot down in the Battle of Britain, you know, and God knows what else. You know, at Cape Lefern, it is the National Memorial site. It's hallowed ground. Uh, and I'm talking to the Trust and, and you know, we're having positive discussions because i think there should be something down there to to remember these other people that rob's talking about that that were involved and you know like everybody what about policemen firemen ambulancemen you know i mean the list is endless isn't it like in the book there that there's the story of yeah. the bombing of the supermarine factory in southampton and you've got 14 year old Douglas Cruikshank, who's a handy lad in the factory, and 19-year-old Peggy Moon, who's a typist, and they're amongst 40-odd, I think it is, who are killed mm. when the workers are trying to be evacuated from the factory into the shelters at Pear Tree yeah. Green, and the shelters are hit, you know. Uh, and I found those two graves in St Mary's Extra Cemetery in Southampton, quite tatty and overgrown and forgotten about. Trace the families, mm. no photographs of them, not one. So you think those are two people who lost their lives in the Battle of Britain. You know, they were making a contribution. They were working at Supermarine, producing Spitfires, you know, mm. and yet their likeness is lost yeah. to history. Mm. I was think it's so sad, isn't it? So you're right. I, I, I don't know what the answer is, really, to try and give some... I think we just... We, we know... Yeah. We that know, we appreciate mm. the, the whole effort, don't yeah. we? Dylan, uh, just... just on the subject of, of bomber command um mm. the turning point it seems in the battle of britain was was when hitler decided to direct his attacks towards london and away from the airfields that's what seemed to save the raf but how much of that was in response to the bombing of berlin just a few nights before or was there really no relationship between those two events well people say there is but but i uh, and I'm sure there was. I mean, I mean, Hitler and Goering particularly had egg on their face, didn't they, with bombs going off on Berlin. So from a propaganda perspective, that they they needed to retaliate. 
but but there was more to it than that because all of this time uh, you know what one thing to to remember is that the Luftwaffe suffered from very poor intelligence throughout the Battle of Britain uh, they really did. You know, they didn't understand the system. They didn't understand the radar. They, they didn't understand Dowding's rotation system of, of bringing squadrons, uh, you know, moving them up north to rebuild them and then bringing them back down south. And this rotation system that ensured, you know, a constant strength in the combat zone. So they, they, they genuinely they thought that they'd things. weakened our, our Yeah, they did. Squadron. They did. Yeah. So, so, so that's a very important thing about the the big wing, because if the big wing did one thing, it crushed the morale of the German bomber crews on Battle of Britain Day mm. when Bader sallies forth over London with 60 fighters uh, and also put heart in, into the hard-pressed 11 group pilots as well, to be fair. You know, oh, my God, here's Douglas Bader, the massive le- RAF legend, <laughs> turning up over London to sort everybody out. Look at him. He's got no legs. And he's absolutely doesn't give a monkeys, you know, with, with 60 pilots behind him. I mean, absolutely. How inspirational is that? Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Did it, do you think um, the Dowding system of radar, um, maybe you could explain a little bit more for our listeners about that, and how effective it was versus the German Würzburg system. Because I've just finished listening to uh, an audiobook about Operation Biting, which is absolutely oh, yeah. fascinating, yeah, 1942. Yeah. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant story, which I had never heard of. Yeah. It appeared to me that the German system of radar, or RDF, or, um, or AIMS, I think was also called here, wasn't it, um, was well in advance of our own system, um, how big a part did one play against the other in terms of the Battle of Britain? Well, when we're looking at a German radar, you're looking at, at some months down the road from the Battle of Britain. So the Germans didn't have radar set up along the French coast or anything in 1940 when we're fighting the Battle of Britain. You know, it, it just didn't happen. So there's really no comparison to be made between the radar systems in, in the Battle of Britain. But But the... The the, ra- the radio direction find in RDF, you know, I mean, it, it was it was miraculous, but it was primitive. And once, okay, so what it was able to do, it was able to see, uh, if you like, that there's aircraft building up over the Pas de Calais or over Cherbourg, and and roughly how many they are, uh, and and the direction of travel when they start coming towards England. But once they've crossed over the English coast, they're not tracked. That's where the observer corps come in. So that's a real limitation of radar. And it was one of the reasons why, um, you know, the night bombing was so bad, because once they crossed in, you've got no visual track. They've gone. So it was very primitive. But again, this goes back to Dowding, who is before he takes over fighter command. He's the air member for research and development. So Dowding, who is a technocrat, he has a great technical mind, Dowding recognises the benefit of, it, of, of integrating radar into the system, uh, and that's quite a brave thing to do because it's a bit of a you know unknown science, isn't it, at the time. Plus, it's Dowding who also uh, you know commissions the specification that became the Spitfire and the Hurricane because he recognises the advantages of, of, of single-engine monoplane fighters. 
So, you know, it, it, all of this keeps going back to dating, whether it's radar, whether it's aircraft, no matter what it is, really. On the uh, Hurricane and Spitfire, what are your thoughts uh, on both planes? They're brilliant. Uh, <laughs> what else do you want to know? <laughs> well, uh, I've, been, I've been looking at some of your many books, and there was one book which I think came out in 2013, which is one of your ones, which talks about the superiority of the Spitfire over the Hurricane, which was, uh, which I think we're agreed on in many ways. But I think it all, I, I may be doing a great disservice, but it almost said that the Spitfire could have won the Battle of Britain single-handedly. Uh, I'd love you to elaborate. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that that's true. I, I mean, if we'd, have, if we'd have been totally Hurricane-equipped, it... it, it it, it, the outcome would have been different. And that, and, and that's just because of one thing. It's because the Hurricane didn't have the high-altitude fighting ability that the Spitfire had. And the 109 was a high-altitude fighter. The 109 was coming in very, very high up. And in fighter combat, there are two things that are important, height and sun. So he who's got the height and the sun achieves surprise, and that's what it's all about. So without the Spitfire's high-altitude capacity... We, we, we were stuffed and that's not my opinion that's my the way well, it is my opinion but you know it's an opinion that that is formed on the basis of a huge amount of research and it was the very much the opinion of pilots like Aldea who had flown the Spitfire during the Battle of Britain at high altitude in those combats the Hurricane mm -hmm. couldn't get up there you know now I mean I love the Hurricane I mean you know let, Let's be fair. I mean, there were more two thirds more hurricanes in the Battle of Britain. So, therefore, I, I have had to do with a lot more hurricane pilots than I have Spitfire pilots in the Battle of Britain. You know, I mean, it stands yeah. to reason, doesn't it? So, yeah, the Hurricane's a, a, a tremendously iconic airplane, I think. But uh, I don't agree with all of this that the Spitfire walked off with the glory and it didn't deserve it. It did. And that's the bottom line. It did. But, because of the high altitude capacity. By the same token, isn't it also agreed that you couldn't have won the Battle of Britain with just Spitfires? Uh, you could turn around a hurricane and repair it a lot more quickly than you could a Spitfire? No, I don't think so. It's, uh, it's also a fallacy about the Spitfire being more difficult to build than the hurricane, and that's why there were less of them. It's just not right, because... Um, the reason there were less of them at the time is because Supermarine was a comparatively small factory and it didn't have the capacity to produce the numbers that the Air Ministry required. So until Castle Bromwich and the Nuffield scheme uh, came about, you know, there wasn't a facility to really mass produce the Spitfire. And the Castle but, Bromwich uh, factory nearly was a disaster, practically, wasn't it? With <laughs> what? industrial relations and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, f fallings yeah. out and... Um, it, it almost yeah. never happened, I believe. <laughs> no, that's right, yeah. But, what? But you know, I mean, 22,000 Spitfires built, most of them built at Castle Bromwich mm -hmm. eventually. So, you know, I, I, I mean, it just goes to show. But but I, I, I have a good friend, Steve Baber, who uh, works at Retro Track and Air and actually builds Spitfires. And Mark Parr at uh, Duxford Aircraft Restoration Company I was with last week. Uh, you know, uh, and, and what... Steve, particularly, who's re rebuilding a Spitfire I recovered from the 7 Estuary in 1993, uh, he's saying, you know, that the Spitfire is actually an easy airplane to build. That, it, that it, uh, And one of the aircraft he's working on at the moment is a Gladiator that is very similar to the Hurricane in construction. 
Uh, and, and when I saw this Gladiator, I think it's the most beautiful piece of engineering. Uh, and and it's, it, it's, it's such a fantastic piece of engineering. It, it's a shame that it's going to be covered in fabric <laughs> yeah. to hide it. Yeah, you know, to hide it. But if you look at if you look at the difference between yeah. the Spitfire, it's yeah. so simple. It's yeah. just formers yeah. and yeah. aluminium sheeting. And, and then you look at the Hurricane. You got all these bracing wires and tubes. I mean, come on. The geodectic design, wasn't it? Well, that yeah. was the old Wellington. That was, I think. I yeah, that was the Wellington. Was geodetic. Yeah, yeah, but it's similar, isn't it? It's tube, tube, tubulars, spars, and bracing wires, fabric covered. You know. Um, and, and look, people say about the hurricane, it was able to absorb more damage from the Spitfire. Well, let me tell you, I've got loads of photographs of Spitfires that have been absolutely yeah. shot to what's it, mm. and they've still got back. So, you know, I, I, I just, I think that sometimes you can have what is a myth that becomes accepted into history, into into our consciousness, and you know, uh, and and th this is what it is, and people. When you're dealing with, see, now I was a detective by profession, and I'm only interested in facts. <laughs> I'm only interested in in the the story is driven by the facts, not your perception and your own agenda driving the story. It doesn't work like that with my research. It is the facts, and sometimes I can have an I, I can have. Um, a view on something and during the course of my research that view gets totally changed because the evidence does not fit what I previously assumed was the case uh, and the trouble is when, you've, when you're dealing with these really entrenched uh, myths and opinions trying to change that is, is very difficult because you know I mean it must frustrate <laughs> academics enormously because the, the detail that's in academic journals about the Battle of Britain and things like that, you know, it, it's phenomenal. But it's only actually read by a comparatively handful of people who, who are other academics. And in the meantime, the popular historians, you know, and I've got a foot in both camps, just carry on churning out the same old stuff, really, because the interpretation isn't open-minded. You've got to be open-minded when you're looking at these things. What do you think are the biggest myths? That you come across about the Battle of Britain. Well, I suppose the fact that the that it was it was such a uh, a decisive battle. It, I I don't think it was uh, yeah. that it was uh, the end was so clear cut. It wasn't things like that really. But perhaps a slightly different take on that it is Professor Richard Overy, who's one of my hero historians, really, and I I've, I've had the pleasure of having lunch with the man some years ago. Uh, you know, R Richard talks about the fact that it's a myth about Britain being alone uh, and that Britain wasn't alone at all. Britain was stood on the shoulders of millions of Indians, Australians, Canadians and etc. and had the huge benefit of the resources of the Commonwealth and the Empire. Uh, so therefore, Britain being alone is a myth. I, I don't agree with that because whilst everything Richard says there is absolutely right, when it comes to those 16 weeks in 1940, it was only the, the British people who were under the bombs within range of the German bombers. And in that sense, Britain was alone. In that sense, fighter command was alone. So let's get it right, shall we, people? You know, I mean, it, ju it, does, it does get me a little bit that, that as a society, especially today, we, we have a tendency to want to denigrate things from the past and, 
Um, you know, and there, there was a lot wrong with that society. I mean, you know, there was. But uh, such as there being a bar on coloured people serving in the Royal Air Force before the war. Uh, it, and that's actually written into legislation. It's all part of the biography I've just done of Salem Milan, which, which is all quite shocking. And, and today we would think that that, that is wrong, quite rightly. But, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, there's there's just there are so many things to research and so many things to look at. And myth is is a fascinating subject all of its own. Salem Milan is, a, is an interesting topic for a book. He, he was quite a controversial character, I think, wasn't he? From South Africa, flew Spitfires. I think it's represented by Robert Shaw, wasn't he, in the, in the Battle of Britain film? Yeah, well, Robert Shaw got, got it completely wrong. <laughs> and uh, well, well, he did. I, I mean, you know, Milan's family have never been happy about, oh. about that portrayal because, uh, and again, you know, I am talking to you as somebody who, who is only interested in, in evidence and who's just written up this hundred and odd 20,000 word biography of Milan, you know, so I have looked at it in some detail, yeah. um, you know, and, and the evidence that comes through is actually, uh, I, I think Robert Shaw was mm. getting confused with Douglas Bader, mm. with the character that he played, because Milan is actually quite softly spoken and quite shy mm. and quite reserved. I mean, it was never, uh, not, it was never actually, I don't think, meant to be Milan specifically, but I think there were well, elements, yes, it was. Of, was it? it well, yeah, it was. Uh, and, and Robert Shaw, uh, Leonard Mosley talks about it in his book on the Battle of Britain film that came out concurrently with the film, that, um, you know, Robert Shaw went away and got the files and did all the research on Milan, so he got the character right, you know. Uh, and I think he must have read Douglas Bardi's files, quite honestly. So <laughs> something went wrong there. Was Milan involved, Dilip, in that first ever Spitfire encounter when they shot down a couple of hurricanes. Was that Milan? Yeah, he was. Uh, yes, it was. And, and I knew John Freeborn, who was one of the two pilots who, who pulled the trigger as well. But, um, you know, that that was a terrible tragedy that that really was waiting to happen, I think, because we were talking earlier on about the um, the fear of bombing and the fear of bombing was absolutely endemic. And, People were that keyed up and that psyched up, and, and and there was an awful lot went wrong on that day. That should never have happened. The Barking Creek tragedy. Milan, of course, was accused of lying uh, at the uh, the court of inquiry by a barrister. Now, I was accused of lying as a detective in the box giving evidence in Crown Court many times, and I can assure you, I wasn't. So, just because a barrister accuses somebody of lying, it means nothing. Yeah. It's just a tactic in a case. So whether Milan lied or not, who knows? Mm. Uh, I, I, I would have to say, well, you'd have to wait to read the book, but I think I would say that if he, if he was lying, it would be totally contrary to everything we know about the man's character and integrity and courage. So I'd be very surprised if that was the case. Mm. But there could be another explanation. Um, uh, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? In your um, dealings and, and, and chatting over your, the time to Battle of Britain pilots, um, generally, they come across well, what I've seen as very sort of reserved, and they, they play down very much what what they did. Um, were there any other than maybe Barda who were the opposite way and, and sort of bigged it up more than you'd expect? <laughs> I think there were one or two at the time that did that, mm-hmm. looking at their combat claims <laughs> and their combat yeah. records. Um, yeah. I, no, I, I I think. 
I'm looking here. I, above my desk, I, I've got... Um, but the Battle of Britain Fighters Association has a tie. Uh, and over yeah. the years, a number of my old friends have left me their ties in their wills. And I've got them framed with photos of them, you know. And I'm just looking at the faces looking down at me off the wall here now. Um, uh, and speaking to some of them was like squeezing blood out of a stone. <laughs> I'm not joking. Tim Elkington and, yeah. and, and the Elkington family will, will totally get me on this, that he absolutely used to confound them because he'd try and play everything down. Uh, and, and this is a man who, is, who survived being shot down by Helmut Vick, bailed out, uh, and later was on the merchant ship fighter unit on the Arctic convoy runs. So you take off on one of those cam ships and you'd have to bail out into the Arctic, you know. Uh, he was in Russia flying hurricanes at, at Archangel and Mamansk and, you know, Wenger, uh, and, and flew all through the war. Uh, and yet, oh, my God... When I came to write the chapter about Tim in the final few, it, it was probably the most purgatorious experience <laughs> I've ever had because he's just so, such a fantastically modest man. Uh, and we all loved him very much indeed. And, and um, he left us uh, a year ago last February. Uh-huh. But, but it, it, it was even, I, I'd have to, you know, I, I, Tim was on email, you know, it was 98 mm-hmm. when, when he left. <laughs> Tim's on email. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, harassing me by email over these chapters that, that <laughs> are, are from you know notes that that I've made where I've gone for lunch and we've we've written it all down and then I go away and write it all up with all the extra detail, uh, and then he's going, oh no no uh, no 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 dear boy, uh, we 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 can't have this, uh, dear. I said, what? What's the problem? He said, well, he said these combat reports of mine, they're rubbish. He said, I, I, I probably, he said, I was pilot officer idiot. He said, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. He said, I probably I, made, I you know, <laughs> yeah, I probably made my, you know. he said, I don't know. He said, oh no, I don't want this. But I'm going, but Tim, you know, this is what's, it's what happened. And, and it's in the public domain. Oh no, we don't want people reading this. You know, it, it's, it's, no, 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 we stuck him in anyway, but. You know, but, uh, yeah, uh, unbelievable. And yet, there was one particular uh, pilot who should remain nameless, who who I have written about in the past, and and I was a bit suspicious at the time, uh, and have since checked out a few facts, you know, and the facts don't stack up really. Yeah. But but his stories were fantastic, and he was such a superb ambassador for the few that it is a real pity that he wasn't actually a, an ace combat pilot because. <laughs> He could talk forever about it, yeah. But some of the stuff he came out with, I used to think, no, that's not right. Oh, you know? what a shame. So, yeah, I know. But, you know, it, hey-ho. Fantastic. But he was there. He was one of the few. Um, I think he just Brilliant. exaggerated slightly, but all good stories. You've got to have a bit of exaggeration. You know? Who are your favourites? Because, you, you know, you got to meet and become friends. I suppose there's so many of them. Did you have... You know, favourites or favourite stories, or well, it's difficult, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I, I'm not a sycophant, and, and I don't. In, in in my sort of professional life, I mean, I've seen the best and worst of people, and I don't think that just because you're about the Britain pilot that makes you a saint. That would be absolutely ridiculous, you know. But by the same token, I, I, I found all of these these men are absolutely wonderful people. And, mm-hmm. and so sort of warm and welcoming. I absolutely never had any problems with anybody. And, and in, 
in, in the few, which is my day to day by day history of the Battle of Britain, I think there's for this first hand accounts in there from over a hundred, which sort of gives you an idea of the the, the, the numbers that I sort of knew, um, that they, they were just great, really. I, 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 can't, I can't really pick anybody out because there are just so many. I mean, George Unwin, you know, as I said before, George, I spoke at George, I sp- spoken at a number of their funerals and it, it got very depressing at one point, I must say. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, George was a, a special friend for all kinds of different reasons and, People like uh, like Tim Alkinson, who we were talking about, you know, you see quite a lot of Tim because he didn't live that far from me. And and Jimmy Jennings was another and Bob Poulton I'm looking at looking at on the wall. I mean, I've got memories of, of all of them. But 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 I mean, a funny one really was Buck Casson. Buck used to come to it used to worry me. It did. I used to do these big book signings and things. And, and looking back on it now, you know. When you think the people you've got there, Johnny Johnson, Sir Dennis Crowley Milling, Sir, Sir Hugh Dundas, Sir Archie Winskill, and a host of, you know, Lady Barder, Lady Downing. And, you know, I can't believe we did those things now. Absolutely amazing. But what used to worry me was as these guys got older, they may well have been charging around the sky, shooting down German fighters and bombers in 1940 as 20-year-olds. But when they were well into their 80s, it did used to worry me that they were converging on my book launches from all points of the compass behind the wheel of a car. <laughs> and, uh, it's true. And, and I remember in 94, I, I did a big thing at Westlands in Yeovil. And... Um, I was driving driving around Yeovil as Buck Casson passes me in his white metro, going the opposite direction, waving at me, not realising he's going the wrong way in a one-way system. <laughs> and, and literally brought, brought the whole of Yeovil to a standstill. You know, uh, and even afterwards, I think he was totally oblivious. So in fact, another worrying thing on that was one day, I mean, this is going off tack a bit, but it is funny. <laughs> When when I look back, I, I, I had a chap <laughs> ring me and he said, uh, look, he said, um, you know, we're down at the fire station or somewhere. We, we've had this 1940s ball and I've made this massive hindcourt bomber out of polystyrene and a spitfire. Uh, is it any good to you? You know, and I said, well, I don't know, probably bring it round, you know, and I'll have a look at it. So anyway, that afternoon, I got Johnny Johnson and Peter Brown, who was another spitfire pilot, Battle of Britain round at my house, and they were staying at a hotel in Worcester with Alfred Price, who was my great mentor and friend, because I was holding a Battle of Britain symposium or a Spitfire symposium the following day, something like that. So Johnny turns up at my place in his Range Rover, AVM1 was his, was his <laughs> cherished plate, AVM1. So comes marking in, telling the kids to shut up. You know. And everybody did, because it, it was like getting a visit from Darth Vader when Johnny came <laughs> Uh, just incredibly charismatic, you know. Anyway, cutting a long story short, you see. So I said, right, well, we'll go to the hotel, Johnny. Uh, I'll drive so I can come back and you follow me. Yeah, right, he says. So off we go. And there's there's the others in, in Johnny's car. And we're driving down the spine road through my estate where I was living at the time. And coming this way it is, of all things, a mini with a 14-foot wingspan, Heinkel bomber strapped <laughs> to the roof. Right. I'm not joking. It's true. Right. This great big... It was quite a good model, actually. It's a wonder this Mini didn't take off. If it had done 60, he'd probably have been, you know, over London. So... 
So I'm driving and I'm laughing at this thing, thinking, oh, my God, you know, there's this high call driving up the road here. And, and I'm being followed by the, the RAF's official top-scoring fighting pilot in World War II. You know, how absolutely bizarre is that? Anyway, I get to the, get to the car park, you see, and I said to Johnny, um, what do you think of the Heinkel then? He goes, Heinkel? Bloody idiot, he said, what are you talking about? I said, didn't you see it? On this mini. Well, I never saw it, he says. <laughs> Worrying, worrying. So, so the the kind of relationship that I had with them, it, it wasn't all you know, detailed, serious history stuff that arose from it. Yes, of course, but but I also know as a professional interviewer, as a detective, you know that I mean it's all about empathy and establishing a rapport with people. Mm. That's when you get the best out of people. Mm. So, the reason. That, that even, you know, we're talking about Tim Alkington, and I mean, I, you know, I am joking. I mean, he did used to drive drive the family to distraction because of his modesty. But but we got there in the end with Tim, and this chapter exists, you know. And and, yeah. and, and that 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 is is not, it, 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 it is possible to do that because of so many different things if, 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 within a relationship that, that builds the trust and the rapport that, that allows you to extract that that detail. So it's quite interesting. When I did Letters from the Few, it, it was a very emotional book, that, because I got my son James round to come up in the attic with me and help me get the archive down. And um, reading through those letters, you know, they're all dead now. Uh, and they're writing to me about my kids and the birth of my kids and moving house and what's happening at work and their families and, and health issues and things that are happening in the world, you know. I mean, it's just friends writing to each other. It's absolutely amazing, really. Yeah, as you say... And there was Tim, I, just the schoolboy, fascinated by the Battle of yeah, Britain film. Yeah. 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 Tim, as you say, I mean, obviously, sadly, these people are not with us forever, how important is it, therefore, to preserve and display old aircraft to help tell the story? Oh, I think it's absolutely, you know, that that is the thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, I can make do my bit by, uh, and other historians as well, by, by recording memories and, and, and providing the context to embed those memories in and, and, and create that record. But if there's one thing that, that is going to grab somebody's attention and inspire them, particularly a youngster, it's got to be a, a, an airplane, hasn't mm. it? I mean, I, I was at Doxford a couple of weeks ago and um, my partner uh, bought us a flight on the Rapide with oh. this flying wing mm. to wing with the Spitfire. Yeah. You know, it was absolutely fantastic. And it was my favourite Spitfire as well, N3200. So that was absolutely fantastic. And and just, just watching the aircraft there and, and watching the reaction of people, I think it's brilliant. And I think that, that the more Spitfires and Hurricanes that are put back in the air, the better. Have you had a flight in the Spitfire? No, I've got no intention of doing that. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jeff has. Uh, I think he's been yeah. funny. <laughs> it was. Yeah, uh, I, I, I go on about it ad nauseum, did it? So I won't go on about it. But I yeah, just yeah. must say, <laughs> it was, it was an extraordinary and incredibly emotional thing. Mm. As I, I, I bored I, these guys with it, but I'll tell you, I, as I got out, no. the pilot asked me, "How was that for you?" And I could not speak. I was. No, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I, I think my my view of it, and it's only a personal thing, you know. 
th those that have done it and enjoy it, fantastic. Philly Boots, you know, mm. it's just not for me because I, my view of it is that the Spitfire, at the end of the day, it was a single-seater fighter mm. and it was the pinnacle of achievement for a generation of young men to sit in that cockpit and fly that thing. And they were supermen to me. And, uh, you know, a lot of them paid the price in training, not even necessarily in action. Uh, and I, I just don't, I just don't want to sit in a two seater and do it. It, it just wouldn't seem right to me. Mm. Uh, and that's just a personal view. I'm not, you know, anybody else does. It's up to them. Mm -hmm. Just my personal view. And, and another reason is that to fly a Spitfire, you know, what was every schoolboy's dream. And it was an unattainable dream. And I want it to stay like that. I want it to stay an unattainable dream. I, I don't want my bubble to be burst. So I've flown, you know, in Tiger Moths and Rapides. And I, I'm, I'm going to do the Harvard tail chase with the Spitfire. <laughs> I don't mind doing that. But I, I don't think I will. Ever, I've had several offers to fly them, you mm. know, over the years. You, you can imagine. But I've always declined. I, I, I don't know. I just don't. It's just not for me, really. That's really interesting. Dilip, thank you so much. It's been fascinating right. to hear everything you've got to say. Um, all your publications. I know there are more to come on the Battle of Britain. So yeah, we look more. forward. Well, good luck with those. We look forward to those. Thank you. Enjoy your Harvard tail chase flight in the Harvard and Spitfire. And uh, we wish you well. Thank you so much for thank speaking to us. Thank you, Cheers, Dilip. Thanks, Dilip. Thank you. Cheers. Well, our thanks there to Dilip Sarka, MBE. Well, coming soon on Top Landing Gear, our tribute to the wonderful Queen of the Skies, the Boeing 747 Jumbo Jet, and to the wonderful VC-10. And we've got lots more stuff planned as well, including a trip to Bomber County, where we'll be meeting the fast jet pilots of today, as well as those preserving our aviation heritage and historic aircraft. And do let us know any stories you'd like us to feature, and we'll try and make it happen. Remember, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Top Landing Gear. And if you could just send in a question for James, that'd be great. Uh, that's info at toplandinggear.com, two Gs. Uh, you can also use our social media pages. Thanks as always for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it and that you'll join us for the next Top Landing Gear podcast. In the meantime, bye for now.